So what we're doing this summer, uh, if this is your first time uh, with us, I just, I just want to explain what we're doing this summer, is that we are uh, going through the biblical story and, and looking at encounters that God has with his people, and we're calling this uh, sermon series, Visitation. And today we're coming to uh, a man by the name of Elijah, and if within the entire biblical story, uh, Within the entire Old Testament, the two most significant figures within uh, the Old Testament are Moses and Elijah. And we're actually going to see these two individuals in two weeks when we look at uh, Jesus' Jesus's encounter with them as well. But today, uh, this, we're just looking at Elijah for the very first time. We're, and so uh, there's a lot to be said about him. And so what I want to do something that's different today than what I normally do. Uh, first, I want to, before we even get to the scripture reading, I want to do um, some more introduction for Elijah. Because if you just look at uh, in your worship guide, um, the first few words is, um, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. So we're, what we're doing today is we're walking into a very tightly packed narrative. We're walking into the middle of a story. And so whenever you walk walk into the middle of the story, it, you always feel like you don't know what's going on. You're like, what is this? What's going on? And so I want to explain what's going on. I want to explain what Elijah had done. And so this, this the events of 1 Kings uh, takes place and they describe what's, what's called the, the monarchy of Israel. And within the biblical story, you have the Israelites when, the, when they are really uh, living a nomadic life, when God comes to Abraham and gives them a promise. Uh, this is also the life of Isaac and Jacob. And, and then they wind up in Egypt when they are enslaved. And then God sends a rescuer. God sends Moses to them to rescue them from slavery and brings them into the promised land that God promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we, we actually saw what their life in that promised land began to look like last week with Gideon. And we hear that phrase in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And now the events of our uh, text today take place about uh, 300 years, even after those events. So, like, we're, we're covering a lot of uh, time. A lot of time passes um, each week as we come to um, our, God's Word today. And so, to, just to give you some more context here. Uh, so, uh, during Elijah's time, Elijah is a prophet. And prophets within uh, in God's Word are those who represent God to his people. And the reason that this was necessary is that God's people need his word and especially during this this during the events of first king because God's people are rebelling against him God's people are going about the ways of Baal and Asherah which we uh, introduced last week with with Gideon as well and just to really understand something about the Canaanite religions that they're dabbling in is that th this is they're incredibly evil and would even involve um, child sacrifice. And the Canaanite religions are actually being um, championed by the king of Israel, Ahab. They're being championed by the queen of Israel, Jezebel. And Jezebel 
and, and Ahab and Jezebel are persecuting God's people. They're actively searching for these prophets like Elijah and killing them. And God's prophets had just this one job of bringing God's word to uh, his people. And so there's this conflict between Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. In the chapter right before this, um, like in, in 1 Kings 18, there's this one encounter. There's a showdown that Elijah has with Ahab. And this is 1 Kings 18, verses 17 through 19. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said, Is it you, troubler of Israel? So you're seeing how Ahab, the king of Israel, has seized these prophets. It's that, oh, you are troublesome. And Elijah shouts back, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your fathers have because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who, who eat at Jezebel's table. So right there, there, there's this clash where we see how the king sees the prophet as a troubler, as the one who is causing this conflict in Israel. And, but at the end of those verses, there is this, there's this invitation for this ultimate epic showdown between, the, uh, between Baal and the one true living God at Mount Carmel. And, and this showdown uh, was very specific. Actually, this showdown was an opportunity for a miracle to happen. And so what happened at Mount Carmel is that Elijah gives the directions, but he also says to Israel, the people, he gathers all the people there. And he says, hey, today, choose this day whom you're going to follow. Or you don't follow Baal or you don't follow Yahweh, you're not one true living God. And so the the... the Competition is simple. As the, the, everyone gathered first thing in the morning, uh, what, the, what the two sides, the, the prophets of Baal and the Asherah, what they started to, to do, well, that's one side, then there's Elijah. And so what the false prophet, the prophets of Baal, what they did is they created a, an altar and they t- took uh, a, a bull and they sacrificed a bull. And so like, but they were not permitted to light it. That instead, the whole, this was the whole competition that they were shouting, they, they were to shout out to Baal for Baal to send fire down. And Elijah would do the same thing with Yahweh. And so the, the events, uh, the competition starts and one hour passes, two, hour, two hours passes, three hours passes. And the prophets of Baal are continuing to shout out to Baal, asking him to send out fire. And... It's not happening. And so then the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves, and, and, like, like, and they're just like working themselves into exhaustion, and they're just done. They're, like, they're tapped out. And at this time, it's like three, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the day, and, and then now it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah builds this little altar. It's a 12 stones. It's a small altar. Then he takes water and just pours water on it. He d- digs a trench around it. He's, given the, the, he's showing us that the, there's no way for this altar to spontaneously uh, burst out into flames. And so then he just uh, cries out to God and says, God, uh, show us today that you are the one true living God. And then boom. God sends fire down from heaven. It's a miracle. And so Elijah, is, his prayers answered. He, the competition has, has been clearly decided that God of Israel, Yahweh, is the one true living God, not these Baals and the Asherahs. And so um, what happens next? 
like this, this brings us to the events of 1 Kings 19. It's like what happens next after God throws down fire from heaven? What happens next? And so let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. We're looking at 1 Kings 19 verses 1 uh, through 19. You can follow along in the worship guide or on the, the words projected on the wall. So let's give our careful attention to God's word. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And how he asked, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you anoint you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shabbat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the, the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees who have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that now that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that your spirit would be shape and form us according to your word. And it's in Christ's name I pray.
Amen. Now, as we just uh, jump into this text, and one of the things that we are, uh, that's on display for us here uh, is that we see a picture of a, one of God's followers, one of God's prophets, come before him. But Elijah is not just any prophet. Uh, he's, a, he's a very compl- complex man, just like any of us, and he is here in, uh, before God as a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. And his hypocrisy has blinded him to God's work in in his own life. He's blind to it here. And and, and the point is that as we come to this this text, one of the things that we all need to see is that we, too, are sinners. And when we arrogantly approach God in our hypocrisy, where we think that we are better than others or other about that where we are better than others then we actually miss out on what god is doing in our lives what he is doing in the world and we miss out on his word that's really what i want to explore for us today and because this story is is what it looks like for a faithful religious follower of god to come before him in his full hypocrisy now when we first saw elijah uh, he is, sh- in this text, he is shocked. He's afraid. We see this um, where in verse 3, that he is afraid. He, and if you recall just the entire context, Mount, Mount Carmel, he had great hopes. He had great aspirations of what would occur there. He, he hoped that all of Israel would turn from their idolatry and return to God. He hoped that they would do a 180. He, he proclaimed that to them. He's like, choose today whom you're going to follow. And even after God's incredible miracle, they are persisting in their idolatry. And this is shocking to us because miracles do one thing throughout the entire biblical story. Miracles always verify the truth of what someone is saying. And so by God's miracle, by God answering Elijah's prayer in a miraculous way, everyone knows that God is the one true living God. Everyone knows that the Baals couldn't do that. The Asherahs couldn't do that. And they know that Ahab and Jezebel as king and queen. They are rebelling against God. But Elijah is fearful because Ahab and Jezebel are still king and queen. They, they know where he's at. And, like he, like, and Jezebel sends a, uh, a messenger. He's like, hey, I'm going to kill you by the end of tomorrow. Elijah is fearful for his life. And so he runs away. And in, we, in verse 8, we're told that he runs away to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is also Mount Sinai, which is incredibly important within the entire biblical story. It's where, El- it's where Abraham met with God. It's where Elijah met with God. So, the, uh, not Elijah, it's true. It's also where Moses met with God. And so Elijah is going there with the hopes, with the expectations of meeting God. And, but he goes there fearful. He goes there with his expectations that, to meet with God, but he is hoping that God's going to meet him. And God clearly does. But I want to lean into Elijah's heart further. We know he is fearful, but he is also angry. Now, fear as an emotion is meant to energize you to flee from danger. It's meant to provide you the energy to go to safety. 
And Elijah's fear here is very specific. It is coming from Ahab and Jezebel. He is afraid of them. He has what's called in the the book of Proverbs, he has the fear of man. And so he's afraid that these two individuals are going to come kill them. And, but at the same time, like Ahab, uh, Elijah hoped that God would completely change her heart there. And so like at Mount Carmel, or at least he would cause, that God would cause Israel to rise up and overthrow them. But that doesn't happen. And so God, what Elijah's fear in this moment, what that fear reveals is that Elijah is believing that God cannot change Jezebel's heart, that God cannot change Ahab's heart. And the truth is that whenever we allow our own fear of man to grow, our fear of God is going to diminish. It's going to decrease. And coming back to Elijah's anger, he's, he's also angry. And sometimes anger can be a good thing. In the New Testament, we see a picture of Jesus walking into the temple, the the place that is meant to be used for the worship of of God, but instead it's being used as a marketplace. And so Jesus goes in, throws over tables, and says, you guys have transformed God's house into a den of robbers. And so that is a picture of righteous anger. And whenever you see injustice in the world, you are actually meant to be angry because that is is not meant to exist. And that anger is meant to empower you and to fuel you, to energize you into action to confront it. But like those are good examples of anger. But the anger that Elijah has right now is incredibly devastating for him and it's toxic the anger that he is, ex- is experiencing is something that we experience as well. And it, because we get angry when we think we are being treated unjustly, where we are being treated unfairly. And that's what's going on with Elijah. Uh, he expected God to act in a mighty way, and God did, but he expected all of Israel to respond to God at Mount Carmel and oh, and overthrow Ahab and Jezebel, or even change, or God would change their hearts as well. So, in other words, Elijah expected to be the hero of the story. That Elijah expected that he was going to be vindicated, and so he is now on the run to Mount Sinai. He is energized by his fear. He's energized by his his sinful anger, and he's coming to Mount Sinai. And once he is there, we actually see just how arrogant Elijah is. And in our text, there's a question that is repeated twice. And whenever there is a, a, something repeated twice within Hebrew, it, that is a way of say, underlining it or putting it in bold. or draw, like It's a way of just emphasizing it. And so he, uh, the question is this. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah responds, right? Here's verse 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed the prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. 
And so right then, like, that's, that's why he's there. He's like, hey, I'm the only one who's here. I'm the only one who's following you. So what does God say to this? Like, and he says, hey, Elijah, you're in a cave right now. Come out of the cave and stand on this mount over here. Stand on, like, the cliff edge, okay? And, uh, and this is uh, the events that we're about to look at are actually very similar to Moses' own encounter with God at Sinai as well. And in a lot of different ways. And because God, like Moses comes out on a, a cliffside and, and the Lord passes by. And then when all of Israel sees Moses once again, his face is shining incredibly bright. And so, like, uh, so that, the, the events that, of, that we see here are very similar to how God met Moses as well. But so as God says, hey, Moses, come out of the cave. Come out here, stand on the cliff. This is what God does. By the way, uh, Moses stays in the cliff. Uh, not Moses, sorry. Elijah stays in the cliff. In verse 11, uh, we, we read that the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the, the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so what does Elijah say in response to this question? He says exactly the same thing. And what, what uh, can I just point out something? I'll, this is actually what I want to point out. Moses, sorry, I'm doing that. Elijah's heart is unchanged. He, he is mad at God for, for the hardness of Ahab. He is, he is mad at God for the, the hardness of Jezebel, how they refuse to be moved by God's miraculous miracle at Mount Carmel. And here he is on Mount Sinai, and he is not changed by God whatsoever. Like the point that I want, that the point that I need to draw right there is, is just how hard our hearts can be. But like Elijah experienced something. He experienced like hurricane force, tornado winds in the desert on the mountain. And he is unmoved. Uh, he experiences um, an earthquake as well. Then he experiences like fire and so forth. Like these are all extraordinary natural events. And like just think about this. When, it, when you have seen an, an awesome uh, picture of nature, say it's Niagara Falls, you just want to stand there and like marvel and say, this is pretty cool. If you're at the Grand Canyon, you want to say, this is really awesome. If you're... Uh, I don't know, pick some other, like one of my favorite place is, places is Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. And you're saying, this is really awesome. You just want to stay, stay there in that moment and just like appreciate it. You're like, this is awesome. And, I, and perhaps you've heard me say it before, in those moments of awe, in those moments of wonder, you are meant to be moved to worship. And just earlier, like the second song we sang today is How Great Thou Art. There's the, these three lines. When I see the brook, when I feel the breeze, then sings my soul. That is what is, that is 
what is meant to happen. Because all of God's creation, all the, the stars in heaven, all everything proclaims God's glory. And when we are there enjoying God's creation, we are meant to be like moved, we are meant to be moved to worship. And so here is, is, is Elijah. His heart's not moved to worship at all. His heart is incredibly hard and calloused towards God. His heart is just as unmoved as Ahab's was. His heart is as unmoved as Jezebel's. And Elijah has forgotten just how deep sin goes into our hearts. He has forgotten that apart from God's grace, there is no difference between Elijah and Ahab. And we read in Romans 3 this about our hearts, that no one is righteous, no one, no not one, no one seeks God. In Genesis 6, we read this, that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was continuously evil. Now, within Scripture, we find this tension. We find this, we see that humanity is capable of great acts of love. But we also see that humanity is capable of great evil. And if we're true, if we're honest, as we look at the world, we see the same thing. We see, how, we see that we are capable of great love and great evil. And this is true, including, uh, it's true about our hearts as well. The Apostle Paul, uh, when he is describing his life after he comes to know God, so this is his description uh, as a Christian, he says that I am the greatest sinner who has ever lived. And elsewhere he says that I do the things I don't want to do. And see that there's a hardness in our heart that without God's intervention, we actually have no hope of life with him. We have no hope of life with God unless God acts within our heart first. And I was listening to a sermon this week, and there's this one illustration that really cut to the heart of the matter of what the pastor was speaking about. And so this pastor was doing some marital counseling for this couple, and their marriage was on the rocks. And their marriage was on the rocks for a lot of different reasons, but uh, as the pastor got to know them, they, uh, they were uh, swingers and involved in other people's uh, sexual lives. And so here's this couple. They're botching God's uh, design for life. They're botching God's design for their marriage. They're botching God's design for sexuality. And so as this couple is coming into, his, into the pastor's office uh, for counseling, uh, he saw that the woman was wearing a scandalous outfit. And during the point their counseling time, the pastor was his eyes were drawn to this woman. And then in the, that moment, he was convicted, and he realized that there's no difference between myself and this couple. I am a sinner just like them. There's no difference between these people and myself. And that's the truth of the matter. None of us. There's no difference between any of us. Christians have no high ground. Christians have no reason to be arrogant. We have no reason that we can go before God and boast. And Elijah forgot that here. He is going before God and saying, I'm the only one left. And you are not rescuing. You're not changing people's hearts through me. And so Elijah's heart here remains unchanged. But what does God continue to do? 
He pursues him. Like, he pursues him. Like, we see, and we see this in, in our text. And, how, and like, it's actually pretty ingenious of God to see how God draws Elijah out. How does, what gets Elijah to come out of that cave? It's not the earthquake. It's not the fire. It's not the tur- tornado force winds. It's a low whisper. It's a, it's a low whisper. Or the Hebrew is actually, the Hebrew calls it a thin silence. And so, like, and so what we see, uh, Elijah, Elijah is thinking, oh, finally God is here. And so he wraps his, his face with his cloak. He, he wants to be able to see God there, and, which always has devastating consequences. But, uh, and so he's coming out to, to meet God here. But we see here that God is showing up in a, in a whisper. And most of the time, we expect God to do something truly awesome in our lives, where God does something earth-shattering, where God just meets our expectations. Like, perhaps uh, this could be where God removes uh, pain in your life. Perhaps this could be when God uh, gives you clarity and certainty. Perhaps he eliminates uh, whatever angers you in, in front of you. He just eliminates those things. He removes those things. But these expectations prevent us from seeing what God is actually up to within us, within our own lives. Because life with God is where we are dependent upon God in everything, where we take risks and step out in faith. Like, that's what faith is. Faith is taking the risk. is where we don't trust ourselves, but actually where we trust God and step out in faith with him. And friends, I want you to know that God is here today. God has brought you here for one very simple reason, and your presence is evidence of this. God is pursuing each one of you. God is actually showing up in your lives and he's showing up in your lives whispering. And perhaps those whispers could be that like, you're, you're here today and uh, you just found Ironworks on a Google map. Perhaps you're here today be in, in a, because a friend or a coworker invited you. Perhaps you're here today um, uh, because uh, you're on vacation. Oh, but God can also be at work in your life through a whisper, through the humbling task of motherhood. That God could be at work in your life through uh, fundraising. Like, God is at work in your life in whatever it is that is making you dependent upon him. And if you want to see how God is at work in your life, what you need to find someone whom you can share your story with. You need to share how God has been at work in your life in the past and so that you can begin to see how God is at work in your life today. And oftentimes we can't see how God's at work in our lives because we are we because our expectations actually give us a platform that we can boast and that our expectations can create uh, ways for us to be arrogant before God. But and so often we can't see what's going on in our lives, but it's actually incredibly easy for other people to see what God is doing. Now, a few weeks ago in our midweek gathering, and uh, right now during our midweek gathering, uh, we are spending time as community group leaders just taking time and sh- to pray and plan for the community groups that we're rolling out in a few weeks. 
And two weeks ago, the, the, what we did is that we actually just began to share our stories with one another. There's 14 of us in the room, and we only had time for eight people to share their stories. But it was a beautiful, it was a very beautiful time where we could see how God has been at work in, in our lives in the past and how God has been at work in our lives today. And it was a beautiful moment because we were all incredibly encouraged because we saw firsthand how God is at work in our lives and in our church. And we want to be known. We want to be a church that knows you. We want to be a church that loves you because that God knows you. God loves you. We want to be a church that extends the same hospitality that God extends us. That's the type of church that God is calling uh, us to be. And if we're going to be this kind of church, if we're going to share our stories in, in the vulnerability that we need to, the first thing that we have to realize is that we have no reason to boast before God. We have no reason to be arrogant before God because we are sinners. The only reason that any, anyone, any of us can claim to have life with God is because God first loved us. We have no reason to arrogantly approach God. It, it's quite the opposite. We, we have every reason to be uh, humiliated but Jesus is the one who came, who lived, who died, who was humiliated for our sakes. Also that we can know the love of God. Because it's in Jesus that, his, that God's love for us is put on full display. That how Jesus went to the cross, Jesus did that so that we can come to know God. So that we could come uh, to his table. And so... This is what God has done for us. And, and as God has done that for us in the past, God is actively at work in our, in our lives today. And perhaps it's hard to see because of our, our expectations, our arrogance. Perhaps it's hard to see because it's a whisper. But friends, the truth of this text is that God is at work in our lives. And he is bringing us to know him. He is pursuing each one of you. And so, friends, the, the response that, this, that God demands of any of us from, from this story is for us to actually go out onto the cliff. And he calls us to come out to him in faith and to where we believe in him and trust in him and not ourselves. Because the only, the only reason that we have that we can boast is actually God's love for us. Let's pray.